Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Lina Zeldovich about the new book, The Other Dark Matter, The Science and Business of Turning Waste into Wealth and Health. Grossly ambitious and rooted in scientific scholarship, The Other Matter shows how human excrement can be a life-saving, money-making resource if we make better use of it. Well, Lena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So as we're going through the unprecedented times of the global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has this affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. I think the pandemic made me realize to what extent we rely on Mother Nature even more so than when I was writing this book. Um, I realized to what extent we need Mother Nature healthy, just as we need ourselves healthy. And because my book, The Other Dark Matter, it talks a lot about environmental health and how tightly humans and their planet are connected, um, the pandemic made me realize it's even more. Uh, In my personal work, I wouldn't say that the pandemic affected my schedule so much. As a writer, I'm a bit of a hermit. I spend a lot of time at home uh, with closed doors um, and and just sitting and working. Um, In that way, my life didn't change very much. So can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I think I had sort of a slightly unconventional bringing. Um, I grew up in Russia in a city called Kazan, about 400 miles northeast of Moscow, uh, on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, where it snowed about nine months out of the year. I grew up on a small family farm, which is where I first got closely acquainted with the subject of my book. On a farm, it is inevitable. Um, Nonetheless, just about everyone in my family was either a scientist or an engineer. So my kind of my, my bedtime stories were as much about princesses and fairies as they were about volcanoes and black holes. It was an interesting way to grow up. Um, I think I, was, I knew I was a writer when I was five because I started writing stories before I even learned to read. I made them up in my head. One of the books that grandma read to me had a, an ending I didn't like. One of the main characters, a singing frog, died because the young puppy chewed it up. So when grandma got to the last page, I would take the book away from her close it, and in my mind told myself a different ending in which the puppy and the frog became friends. And as soon as I learned letters, I started writing those stories out on loose sheets of paper, which I then bound into my own books. And one of the first such books was inspired by Russian and French story tales. And it started with the classic, once upon a time, there was a prince. Well, I learned letters, but not spelling. So I spelled prince without an I, or in Russian, it's actually an E. And when my mom pointed it out to me, I told her that you didn't need to put that letter in there because you could hear it as it is. Um, 
in Russia, literature and poetry were always held in high regard, and fiction was my first love. I read it nonstop. But in my teenage years, I also realized the power of journalism. When I was 12, I was struck with a rare disorder that slowly took my ability to walk. So I laid in bed reading French, English, and American novels to escape my miserable reality with pretty dire prospects. In the meantime, my father's aunt, who lived in Denver, uh, read in a newspaper a story, an article about an experimental surgery that was done in a small snow-buried city in Siberia. So she cut the article out, put it in an envelope, and mailed it to us. Back then, letters took forever, and some didn't make it, but this one did. Um, and it turned out to be the exact kind of surgery for me. So I got that surgery as my birthday gift for my 15th birthday, accidentally. And my next school year, I was back to school and walking again. And that left a profound impression on me. And I knew that was what I wanted to do for a living. I wish I could find the journalist who wrote that story, but I didn't even know the name. My family never thought of writing as a serious profession. They were all doctors and and engineers and scientists, and they didn't see it as a normal path in life. So I was very heavily discouraged from even thinking about it. And then there came an even greater obstacle. We moved to New York, to the United States, the whole new culture, and most importantly, new language. We had a, you know, we came with one big travel bag per person, $600 total in cash and a million dreams. But among all of those dreams, there was only one that I couldn't dream anymore, and that being a writer, because you can't write in a language you can't speak. So I left that dream back in Russia, threw away everything I ever wrote, from that first Prince book, poems, stories, essays, articles, every scrap of paper I found in my desk, and and stopped thinking about it. Well, at least that's what my friends and families told me. That made sense. And then when school started here in the States, things got worse. When I read the first page of the first chapter in my first American textbook, not a single sentence made sense. I translated every word on this page and wrote its meaning in Russian. I still didn't understand a damn thing. I sat at my desk and cried so hard, the book got all wet. And then I decided that I was going to master this cryptic new language and die trying. Well, I didn't die. But ultimately, I chose not to believe to you know, all of these logical and rational people who told me you can't write in your second language, because guess what? I'm walking proof that you can. Yeah, this is truly fascinating story. So I was wondering, when did your appreciation of nature begin? Also in your childhood? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, as I mentioned, I grew up on a farm, on a small family farm, which my grandfather ran. Um, and every fall, he would open our septic system and empty its content into his compost pits and into our farm. Um, the stinky operation took hours, and I wanted, always wanted to know how the cesspit looked like. And I would start making my way there through thorn bushes and stinking nettles. And then my grandma would start yelling from the porch, you're going to fall in, you're going to fall in. Um, and she would grab me before I could see it. I had such a fascination with that whole operation because it only happened once a year, like Christmas or birthday. And gran- grandpa would go and open it up like a present, kind of a stinky present. And he was the <laughs> only person allowed looking at it and deal with it. Although I could follow him on the farm and help him, you know, plant things and dig things up. Um, 
we could have called a service to empty it, but my father wouldn't let all this riches to go to waste. He had a system. Sometimes he would carry these buckets by hand. Sometimes he balanced them on this thing called a karmisla, an arched wooden pole placed over his shoulders to distribute weight evenly. He walked slowly towards splashing the stuff onto his clothes and boots. He didn't just dump it wherever. He poked small, small holes in strawberry and tomato patches where the plants were already dead for winter and poured the goo into that, into the holes deep into the earth. He dug little trenches around apple trees and emptied his buckets onto the roots. And then he dumped a bunch into his compost pits, um, adding it to the already you know, accumulated dead plants, leaves, and uh, kitchen food scraps. The compost pits operated on a rotating schedule. Um, he would, at the end of the season, he would close the current one for a couple years, leaving it to ferment and biodegrade. When he opened it up again two seasons later, all the original stuff was gone. The pit was full of soft black dirt teeming with fat, lazy earthworms that crawled around there easily and slowly, too heavy from all that food. And the sewage otter would be gone too. Instead, the pit smelled of rich, fertile soil, spring, and the promise of the next harvest. And it made me hungry because I thought of all the food we were going to grow with it. Um, the way he used to put it was, you have to feed the earth the way you feed people. And it was such a beautiful concept to me, such a wonderful, what today we call circular eco uh, ecology or circular agriculture. But back then, it was just a natural process. We ate and took from the Mother Earth, and then we gave back to it. That's how it was supposed to be in my mind. Um, and I thought the whole world did the same. So in your latest book, The Other Dark Matter, The Science and Business of Turning Waste into Wealth and Health, you bring all of your experiences and a really deep scientific scholarship into this. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Well, a lot of the book, um, the inspiration for the book stems from my childhood, from things I saw and um, things and how I thought things were supposed to work. Um, when I grew up, I was, I realized quite shockingly that most people didn't preserve their excrement. I didn't reuse it. Most people just flushed it down the toilet. It was kind of strange because I, I knew that people lived in big apartment buildings with flushing toilets, but I always thought all of this goodness and richness was going somewhere in the larger cesspit where it would eventually be converted, um, to a fertilizer similar to how we did it. Um, well, imagine my shocker when I learned that wasn't the case. So you cover quite a lot of really interesting science in your book. So let's delve into some of it. And can we start with the beginning? When did we start managing waste? That is a great question. Um, I think the earliest uh, notions, the, the earliest mentions of toilets, of, of human-built toilets, go back some 5,000 years. Before that, we actually didn't have to manage our waste. Uh, we were lucky that way. For as long as, as humans were nomadic, um, and they sort of pranced and, and walked you know, through, through the prairies or the forest or the mountains, they didn't have to bother cleaning up after themselves. You know, They would stop wherever they wanted it, took care of their business and kept on walking. And Mother Nature would take care of whatever was left behind. 
very naturally. It would eventually biodegrade it into soil. When generally um, a, a pile of poop left outside to its own devices begins to endanger humans almost Im- immediately, all kinds of parasites and flies swarm in, you know, leave eggs and um, promote bacterial growth. If you keep walking away from your shit, you don't have to worry about it. Well, that changed when humans settled and started farming because they could no longer walk from their shit. They had to deal with it somehow. For a while, while the settlements were small, people would just go outside of their homes and maybe outside their villages into the nearest forest patch or a you know, big open field or meadow with a tall grass and you know, offered, you know, left their offerings for Mother Nature to take care of. But when settlements and villages grew into bigger cities, that became a real problem and you know, shit really began to stink. Um, in some early um, early settlements and you know in, in during the early Greek civilizations, ancient Greek civilizations and other ancient civilizations in the Indus Valley, um, those you know Harappan and Minoan ancient Greeks built um, built somewhat of a primitive but fairly efficient ways of getting rid of their excrements. Um, they built, uh, sewage gutters in a lot of cases closed um, that ran through the city and channeled the excrement out of people's homes and usually into some body of water. Um, they built fairly sophisticated ways of gathering uh, rainwater, uh, storing it and using it not only for drinking and cooking, but also for flushing um, their sewage gutters and even their toilets. Um, so simple makeshift, you know, latrine-like toilets that uh, nonetheless flush the waste out of their houses. So the, I think the earliest um, toilets do date in, you know, Neolithic toilets date back to about 5,000 years. So that's pretty much since then we decided we didn't want to, anything to do with our excrement and wanted to keep it as far away from us as possible. So what kind of technologies were really groundbreaking at that time? Um, There were some really interesting technologies and methods um, that people, um, older societies devised for getting rid of their waste. Not everybody, however, was looking at waste as waste and not everybody was calling it that way. Um, In particular, um, the pre-industrial Chinese and Japanese cultures valued their excrement very much. And in fact, usually when I talk about my book, I tell um, another little story that I kind of learned while working on it um, that also comes in the form of a story tale, the once upon a time kind of story tale. Um, So only in this case, it was a once upon a time in a kingdom far, far away in China, there was not a prince, but an emperor of the Qing dynasty. And one day in 1937, that emperor looked to the south half of his kingdom and was pleased to see that the cities were thriving and clean and the farms were fertile and plentiful. But then he looked to the north 
and saw that the cities were dirty and fields were barren. And when he looked closely, he knew why. The southern residents diligently collected their excrement from the cities and brought it to the farmers to the countryside to grow food. But the northern residents apparently had not caught up with that wisdom. So the emperor issued a decree that ordered all of his people to collect their excrement, which they actually called night soil, because people usually put out their chamber pots out of their houses um, in the morning. The streets in the north are not clean, his treatise read. The land is filthy. Every household must collect night soil and treasure night soil as if it were gold. Um, it's, um, it's a really interesting peek into this really ancient culture. So today we know that um, the Chinese were really excellent farmers. In the early 20th century, one of the di- directors of the, um, the, the early USDA w- went to China to study how Chinese farmers um, do their agriculture because they, they were known for being able to farm on the same land for over and over and over, century after century, generation after generation, and their land didn't grow barren. In the United States, it wasn't working like that. Neither, neither was it working like that in Europe. So he went to study their methods, and what he learned is for centuries, that's exactly what the Chinese um, societies did. They had very well-oiled, well-working, sophisticated ways of gathering the excrement in cities and transferring them to the countryside. Um, they were very well organized. They had collection services. Um, collectors knew who they were collecting from and when. They took the waste out on wheelbarrows. They loaded it up in some cases in barges, in other cases on uh, mules, and, and took it out of the city. They out of the cities. They processed it. Sometimes dried. Sometimes you know, mixed it together. They sorted it according to their nutritional value. In particular. Uh, excrement collected in the more affluent parts of the cities was valued more because these people had better diets and therefore they had more nutrients in their poop. Um, that that goodness was then sold to farmers at different prices. Uh, the Chinese were not the only ones who treasured their poop. In, in Japan, the value of night soil was in fact measured in gold. The pride of the price of night soil produced by 10 households in a year was half a ria of gold. To put this in perspective, one ria could buy all the grain needed to feed one person for a year. And there was another very complex system of regulations that governed that night soil business, delving into minuscule details unimaginable by our standards. For example, if a family rented a house, who had the rights to the excrement, the tenants or the landlord? It may seem logical that the tenants who produced it should have been the proud owners of their poop, but nope. The dwelling's night soil belonged to the landlord who sold it to the farmers. And the more people lived in the house, let's say four versus six, the cheaper was the rent because they produced more poop. Um, Farmers fought over who got to collect excrement and where. In the summer of 1724, Two groups of villages erupted in poop wars, fighting over the rights to gather night soil from different parts of 
parts of Osaka. So cities form their own organizations to oversee waste disposal and price negotiation. And they raised prices on their poo. So the less fortunate farmers who couldn't buy it were in trouble. And that led to a crime unimaginable by Western standards, stealing shit. By Japanese canons, it was a very serious offense. So serious, in fact, that the law enforcement authorities punished it by sending the felons to prison. And yet that didn't stop the desperate farmers from committing this stinky crime because a sudden drop in excrement supply would completely devastate a family. So when I was researching my book, The Other Dark Matter, I became really curious. So why were some of the societies so good at... At, at recycling their excrement, just like my grandfather was, but the rest of the world wasn't. And so, well, the devil is always in the details, and so about these solutions. The reason some of the societies were so good at it was because they weren't blessed with fertile soil to begin with. Um, in Japan, particularly, um, it was a real problem. A lot of um, Japan is a small island, and a, a lot of its land wasn't particularly arable. It was sandy. It was nutrient poor. It was mountainous. It was hard to grow anything there. So societies who had to survive in this type of conditions had to had to work really hard at making their land bear fruit, and so they've learned to gather absolutely everything they could and give it back to the earth, kind of like my grandfather did. Um, but I learned that I was wondering, where did he learn all this wisdom? And unfortunately, to this day, I don't know, and I probably will never know, but it is entirely possible that in Russia, some of these Eastern ideas sort of trickled in from China and Japan. This is truly fascinating, these kind of relationships uh, uh, really between, as you say, the uh, uh, non-arable and arable soil and uh, ability to upcycle basically your own waste. So I was wondering when we come to Europe, so many of our listeners would be familiar with uh, the sewage system in uh, Rome, for example. How different was it uh, here? Yeah, that's, um, that's a very good point. So Europeans, unlike um, the, these Asian societies, Europeans had a very different view of their excrement. They were in, for the most part, lucky. They had good soils and they had forests that created good soil. So many European farmers could cut down um, a forested patch and turn it into the next field. So they didn't have to worry so much about reusing their excrement. They've used cow manure, goat's manure, and other form of manure, but the excrement was always sort of shunned. And when I was looking in the literature, I couldn't really find any good explanation as to why. It just was, most likely because it wasn't necessary. Uh, it, in, in, in the ancient Rome, uh, in, in, in ancient Rome, it seems that some people understood the value of manure and were using it, but all in all, not so much. For the most part, um, the goal was to build uh, the massive sewage removal systems like Cloaca Massima that removed everything from Rome um, in, 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 and flushed it into Tiber. 
Uh, so the Europeans pretty much inherited the Romans' view of their excrement removal, but they haven't built a comparable system for quite some time. Um, in medieval European cities, excrement was a huge issue. In Berlin, for example, it was a famously massive sinking pile sitting outside the city's central cathedral where residents would uh, empty their chamber pots every morning. It grew to uh, to the extent that the city's the Berlin authorities issued a decree that every farmer who came to the city to sell his produce had to take a load home. Uh, France wasn't much better. Uh, Paris was apparently famous for its stink. Um, it didn't really have, for a while, didn't have new toilet systems and people, including the nobles, just basically went wherever they could, including on the steps of the Louvre. Um, in London, uh, people built cesspits, which sometimes overflow, you know, cesspits and latrines. And at some point, it become nearly impossible to live because the uh, recurrent um, outbreaks of cholera were killing hundreds of people. Um, because the recurring epidemics of cholera were... Ah, okay, I'm going to rephrase it. Mm -hmm. um, in London, people built cesspits and latrines, which eventually overflow and run out of space. So, I'm sorry, that seems to be, London seems to be a problem. Give me a second. I'll just, I'll, I'll you know, I'll gather my thoughts again. London was so filthy that the recurrent epidemics of cholera killed hundreds of thousands of people um, before the city authorities finally decided um, to do something about it. Um, the city built um, a sewage system to remove excrement from people's homes. I don't know why. Maybe you should keep a pause for a second. Uh, yeah, sure, of course. Okay. Um, one of the more modern uh, sewage system operations was built um, in the Victorian London. Before that, London was so filthy that the recurring epidemics of cholera and other infectious disease uh, you know, killed hundreds of thousands of people. So eventually, the city built a system of sewage pipe, pipes that flushed the excrement into the Thames. Th into the Thames. And, but that came with its own interesting problem. The first, in fact, the first modern toilet that really flushed you know, with a lever was built by a queen's cousin, um, his name was Sir Harrington. He built his first ever toilet while he was exiled from the courts for either writing um, some kind of um, you know, poem that was too fresh or doing something else. Um, he, he built a first ever flushing toilet with a lever and a tank. And um, when the queen came to visit him, she apparently liked his new contraption and wanted one installed in her own palace, which he did. Don't remember exactly, but maybe that was his you know, way back to the courts to you know, forgiveness. Um, so the contraption didn't take right away. It needed about a hundred, a 
couple of hundred years to get perfected better. And one of the pioneers of the new toilet system was uh, an engineer named Thomas Crapper. And guess what? You know, he's, we still remember his name to this day, maybe even multiple times a day when we all need to go take a crap. Um, that was an interesting fact that I didn't know <laughs> before I started working on my book. Uh, so when he perfected this, the, the toilet to the point that it was easy to install and use, and that, that in fact it didn't stink because um, the smell of the sewage couldn't come back to the room after you flushed. Um, the toilet or water closet, as the, Victor- the polite Victorian society christened it, became extremely popular. Everybody wanted it. So the city moved from your know, cesspits and latrines um, to the toilet system. Well, that came with its own problems because now all of the excrement was flushing into the river. The river became so polluted that it was impossible to walk along it. It stunk, especially in summers. The stunk emanated spreading through the city to the point that people avoided to walking anywhere nearby the river and crossing it on bridges. Um, the epidemics of cholera came anyway, and so the city authorities realized that they had to do something. It just couldn't continue. So a bunch of learned men boarded up on a ship and sailed up the river to see what was the situation with the sewage. So imagine this assemblage of highly sophisticated lords, peering into their pence nays at the dark, murky water, trying to see what was floating in it. Um, When they came back, they wrote a report that for quite a while, they couldn't even see any water. It was just thick sewage until they went quite far. Soon, a debate you know, showed uh, uh, what to do with all this shit. What was really interesting is the way they solved it. You know, after debating for a while, at first they, they, they debated about whether to build a whole separate system you know, for the sewage, to keep one for the stormwater and another one for sewage. The stormwater would just flow into the Thames because it wasn't it didn't contain any sewage, and then the sewage would be pumped someplace else. There was even an idea floated that you could accumulate all that sewage somewhere and then pump it out of the city and into the farms. The problem was that you had to build literally miles and miles of pipes leading out, and then how would you pump it? You would. The only way at the time to pump it was to use some kind of a steam mechanism. That was expensive, and you would still need water. The other problem was farm you know, farmers could use this in summer, but what would they do with it all in winter? You know, unfortunately, the Londoners couldn't stop pooping, you know, for the season. <laughs> so, with all the debates, it ultimately didn't lead anywhere. So, we still ended up, and with you know, the Londoners still ended up with what they call the combined sewage system that you know has both you know storm water and sewage, and that's what we pretty much use today, pretty much everywhere, in most of the developed world. Um, so to get rid of all the sewage that was flashed into the Thames and kind of set there on the riverbanks, so thick that the boat sometimes ran aground, um, the, the city authorities chartered two huge boats. They would load it up into the boat's bellies manually and then sail it out to sea where they would basically 
dump it in the ocean. Not a very ecological solution, but interesting enough, those spots became uh, the favorite places for fish to gather and eat. And some people actually knew those spots, and so they would go fishing there specifically. Oh, wow. It's uh, like making a farm right in the middle of the of the ocean. <laughs> Not, not unlike that. Not unlike that. Um, the, the thing is that it could work on still on a fairly small scale. It would not work on a large scale. It can't work on a on a scale of the twenty first century. So, how our relationship started evolving throughout time to what we see nowadays? That is a great question. Um, I think it took us humans. Um, uh, quite some time to realize what we're actually doing because the problem isn't just that we are polluting the ocean or that we're polluting the land or that we're burning um, our, what's called in the industry today, biosolids. Um, The problem is actually far more complex and sophisticated and some scientists out there call it the redistribution of nutrients on the planet. So here's what happens. Um, Think of the developed world um, where we live. Most of our food, especially in colder climates, you know, you in Switzerland, me in New York, um, most of our food, a lot of our food, isn't grown locally. It just would be impossible. It's freezing outside today. Nothing would grow. So a lot of it, a lot of our food comes from other places, from warmer places, probably from down south. Um, our apples, oranges, bananas, uh, they grow someplace else and then they are shipped to us or trucked to us you know, using fossil fuels. So they take nutrients out of the land someplace else. And then we consume it in a different geographic locale. And as we eat them and excrete them, all these nutrients go somewhere, but they don't go back to soil. Um, Neither here where we live, nor where that food grown, where ideally they should be going. Instead, they're going into some body of water um, because as our industrial sewage treatment plants um, separate water from what they call biosolids, you know, the gunk that nobody wants. They purify the water and they release it back to the environment. But in that water, there's still a lot of nutrients left. There's still nitrogen, there's still phosphorus, there's still potassium, all of which a poop is very rich on. When that water flows into rivers and lakes, and ultimately the oceans, It fertilizes all the wrong things along the way. It causes those infamous algae blooms and toxic algae blooms. It causes overgrowth of marshes and lakes that eventually smother out um, the native organisms there and turn into dead zones. Meanwhile, we're left with all these biosolids that we quite often totally don't know what to do with. Sometimes they just burn. Sometimes they dumped in landfills. Um, in some places, they're kept in these massive lagoons, which is a euphemism for ma- basically massive cesspits. And that's what the scientists refer to what they 
to uh, when they say the redistribution of nutrients on the planet, we keep taking our nutrients from from farms and depositing them in the ocean. And that's not how it should be. The point is that we have to somehow close that circle. That's truly fascinating that uh, we sort of focus on one part, like collection, and then mostly don't really focus on uh, the ability to upcycle or turn it into some really valuable uh, asset, really. So what are the ways to really take advantage of all of this wealth, nutrient wealth? When I started working on the book, I didn't even realize how many new technologies are there that are sort of budding up. I, I knew of a few, but it turned out that the opportunities are massive and like truly the sky is the limit. Um, there are modern technologies that can do all kinds of things with, with our metabolic output, turning it into fertilizer, you know, biogas, uh, car fuel, and even medicine. Should we go sort of a chapter by chapter or should I sort of just go and talk? Yeah, whichever way you prefer. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, my journey into the sewage, modern sewage technology started with the developing world. And that most likely had a very good reason. See, here in, um, in the Western world, we're generally safe from our excrement. It doesn't cause disease anymore. So we sort of look the other way and don't think of all the other problems. But in places like Africa or India, um, excrement, excrement management is still a massive, massive problem. In some places in this world, flushing systems like ours simply can't be built. Sometimes because there isn't enough water. Sometimes because there's too much of it. Having too much water isn't really a blessing because you're, even if you invest billions of dollars into building um, your um, uh, underground pipes, um, if your if your country floods regularly, your sewage system will regularly flood too and basically be useless. So in Madagascar, that's exactly the case. Um, only about two percent of the Madagascar population have flushing toilets. The rest have latrines or they just head out to the bushes when nature calls. But when you have regular flooding, latrines are sort of a ticking time bomb. The next time it floods, all that goo comes out of your toilet and it flows into your yard and even into your living room, making people sick. Uh, latrines overflow, latrines need to be emptied. Um, in places like Madagascar, they emptied manually. It's a big problem. It's also not particularly hygienic. Um, so in the 21st century, when people live in crowded conditions with toilets that are constantly overflow, it's a sure thing for constant outbreaks. And so there are startups that are trying to solve this problem in a very interesting way, kind of going back to basic, going back to um, the ancient societies that managed the waste better, kind of like the Chinese and the Japanese. So one such startup named Luwat I came across in Madagascar um, 
So they came up with kind of a really interesting idea. So they offer a service. They offer a collection service very much like the Chinese and the Japanese used to do. They, the Luwat sets up a toilet for people interested in their service. Um, only unlike the chamber pots of the three or 400 years ago, the excrement is collected into biodegradable bag that's sort of fitted underneath the toilet. And the toilets are so smart that they know when the bag fills up and they send a text to the collection service or you know, the people can you know, text themselves. So the service comes in, swap, you know, swaps the bag. It you know, closes tightly. There's no stink. They you know, don't see it. Um, they pick up the bag and they go to the next person. Um, when all of the bags are collected, they're taken to a biodigester site where the excrement is loaded up into this kind of like this massive tank, massive PVC uh, tank where it um, sits and biodegrades for about a month or maybe a little bit longer. So what happens during that is the bacteria that normally live in that environment chew through that sewage. um, And as they do it, they... um, Turn it. They, they turn it into biogas, which is methane, um, and basically organic matter. Not unlike um, what my grandfather would unearth from his compost pits you know, two or three seasons later. Um, by then, it's really not that much different from soil, and it can be used as fertilizer by farmers. You know, once again. To me, it was absolutely fascinating to see that a couple of decades, you know, after um, I've last witnessed my grandfather do it on his own farm, that that something like this can exist in the 21st century. Um, I went on that collection trip with the Luat service, and I spoke on the way. I spoke to um, the people who were using that service. One of the interesting conversations that really stuck with me was with a couple of mothers who had uh, little, but not very little children, about five or you know, eight years old. And they proudly told me, you know, these toilets are so wonderful and so simple. Even my child can use it. And I was a little bit surprised by this description because Madagascar children so incredibly smart and mature and and adult like they walk for miles to the nearest you know water well and they carry buckets back to their and to their families quite often walking on streets that are unpaved uh, have no pedestrian walks and where everything sort of walks together cars bikes chickens dogs you know, everything and then some it was surprising to me that children like that would have any difficulty using any toilet well the really ugly and stinky truth dawned on me a little bit later when i saw the conditions of you know the, some of these latrines how terrible they can be um for starters a lot of them have no electricity if you have to go there in the middle of the night you can't see anything um, they can be slippery the planks uh, of the floor can be broken and cracked. So if a little kid goes into there, it is entirely possible that it can't fall in. And that happens. So in our world, 
mothers worry about their children crossing the street on the way to school. In that world, mothers worry about their children going to use the latrine. And generally, they don't let their children use the latrine until they grow big enough that they can't fall in. Moving on to other technologies. So um, there are other ways. Um, there are other substances that our excrement can be converted to. So Luwet is one example. Another interesting example I came across um, was is, is, is another company in Kenya called Sanivation. So their take was it will be hard to sell um, the to sell it as fertilizer because you have to track it along. You know, people may want it one season and not want the other season. Seasons are hard. You need something regular and steady, something that people would want to buy on a regular basis. And so they devised the method of converting um, in human excrement into a form of fuel. They mix it uh, with sawdust and other agricultural refuse um, and bake it into burnable briquettes that basically a form of of charcoal that work pretty much just the charcoal itself. So people can now buy them and cook their dinner on them. Mm -hmm. That actually solved two problems at once. It solved the problem of uh, excrement disposal, but also it, it is now helping decrease the deforestation in Kenya because charcoal is basically, you know, the, the, the source of fuel in the country. And so people are cutting down forests just to turn trees into charcoal so they can cook food. Um, so in this case, excrement solves two problems at once. These technologies are truly exciting <laughs> and you really want to see them implemented on a large scale, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think in some in some cases it might it might be possible to implement them on a large scale. Um, there are also other ways that might work for bigger cities. One of the things that I was really curious when I was um, working in reporting in Madagascar. Um, I was curious, like, can this work in New York City? I tried to imagine like little carts or I don't know, equivalent of garbage trucks you're running down my own street and you're picking up containers of poo. Honestly, we put out three or four different types of garbage now and, and you know, biodegradable plastic and not and paper. And it works like that in other places too. You know, Switzerland is a you know, pioneer in all things recycling. So I was trying to imagine how hot would it be to add just a little cartridge of poo to it all in all? Probably not that hard, but I am not <laughs> sure you know, the rest of New Yorkers would buy into so easily. Uh, what's interesting in some of the um, um, you know, leading minds in, um, in, in the poop recycling field, do you think that it might be the way to go for at least some cities, especially those that are running out of water? Um, but it is possible to do other things on a large scale without you know, maybe massively disrupting the current infrastructure or massively changing the mind shift of your, agri- your regular average toilet goer. Um, and I did find them here in the Western world too. Um, there's a very interesting company in Canada called Listic that was started by two scientists who one day 
you know, looked out the window um, of their research institution and saw all these different trucks going in and out of the city with no apparent purpose or reason. So it turned, turned out the trucks were basically tracking out shit that the city produced somewhere. Nobody knew exactly where. So the scientists were horrified. Like most of the, if if you take you know if you take what arrives at the sewage plant someplace, it's mostly water. So the trucks basically shuttling water back and forth using fossil fuel. So the scientists decided to change that, and they took a few years to work at it. And they devised a very interesting method um, of of. Uh, uh, you know, turning the seeds output into fertilizer pretty much straight away. So what they do is, what they did is they they bought a blender, and they tried blending poop in their own kitchens to see what kind of um, liquid fertilizer it could turn into. And lo and behold, it actually worked. So they what they build instead is a massive uh, blender that uh, you know whips your regular um, your metabolic output of a you know, of a, the entire city. And so, what they call a sewage smoothie, kind of a nice, um, you know, thick but not very thick liquid that oh can boy. be, pumped, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, that can be pumped into a truck, um, uh, you know, cleaned enough that it you. Know, that's kind of like you know, cooked to the point that it kills all the pathogens, and then the trucks can take it out uh, to the fields and inject it into soil. Um, there are other interesting um, ways uh, to deal with sewage. One of my absolute favorites was um, a, uh, a sewage plant in our nation's capital in the DC water. Um, and what it what it does it really truly beautiful. When the sewage arrives to the plant, it gets cooked in these massive pressure cookers uh, to at, uh, at a few hundred degrees, and at six atmospheres, you know that, that's you know six times more than you and I are feeling right now. At that hellish conditions, no. Um, no pathogens can survive. At the end of the cooking cycle, everything is gone. What you have is just a massive black goo that doesn't endanger anybody. Um, and, um, and, 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 and can be safely used as fertilizer. But before that happens, it goes through the next step. Um, they load it into massive biodigesters, much bigger than what I saw in Madagascar. And you know, let it sit there for a, a month or two let the bacteria chew through it again. Um, um, out comes methane with the plant uses um, you know, to create electricity. And at the very end, what comes out is kind of this muddy goo that you see um, in the early spring along the riverbanks when the snow melts and it kind of gets this kind of like muddy and gunky. Um, um, what, was, what I found very interesting is this muddy and gunky substance smell just like the forest floor. You know, being around it was reminiscent of walking in the forest. And I thought it was a truly fascinating um, experience, a truly fascinating feeling. Um, the plant that dewaters the goo, um, dries it up, and what comes out is just your classic garden dirt. 
Um, and it is so classically garden dirt that it's even pleasant to hold in your hand. It smelled just like my grandfather's compost pits. It smelled with the promise of the new harvest. It smelled like the food it was going to create. So now thinking about the bigger picture, what would be the key implications of us learning how to manage and reuse our waste properly, especially when we think about environmental concerns? So if we could implement some of these solutions on a wider scale, it would solve multiple problems at once. For starters, it would stop or nearly stop the redistribution of nutrients on the planet. We would stop over fertilizing our oceans and rivers, and we would start returning these nutrients back to Earth. That would also mean that we have to use less of the synthetic fertilizer that is quite expensive to produce, uses a lot of fossil fuels, and also polluting. It releases a lot of pollutants into the atmosphere that ultimately contribute to the acid rains. So basically, if we could fix the broken link, we would start drastically improving the Earth's ecology in more than one way. We wouldn't have to create fertilizer. We wouldn't have to use fossil fuels for that. Um, our food would probably be also more nutritious because it is a known fact that you know natural and organic fertilizers are generally you know better. They create tastier food and you know healthier food um, than synthetic ones. And what kind of discoveries along your journey to writing your book, The Other Matter, surprised you the most? Give me a sec. Give me a second to think about it too discoveries well what it is is in a way I, I talked about them i think that you know the dec water was a real eye-opener so was madagascar so i'm trying to think what else i can talk about maybe i can instead tell you change that question a little bit and, cha- and and tell you about some of the particularly memorable moments uh yeah sure do, um, do you want to instead ask that question um, yeah, of course. So were there any memorable moments on your journey to writing your dark matter that really stood out for you? Yes. I was a there was definitely a few. One was in Madagascar. Um after visiting the biodigester plant, um my um you know chaperones suggested we go and visit their R and D lab. And I said, yes, of course, sure. Um, in my, I, I, I genuinely came prepared. I knew I was going to be, um, you know, exposed to a lot of uh, unsanitary conditions. You know, I brought you know, medicine. I brought hand sanitizer. Um, but when he said an R&D lab, I still imagine in my naivete um, a nice research lab, you know, white walls uh, clean and sterile and um beautiful and so and i was up for surprise so we walk into this r&d lab where i was told they sort of um you know they study what else they can do with the output of their you know, biodigester um 
And I come in kind of expecting, you know, pipettes and microscopes. And instead, what I see is a room full of crates of shit, top to bottom. (laughs) Um, And I freeze. And I don't even know what to do. Like, is it okay to breathe? Um, and there's three people working uh, there with you know, wearing gloves and headnets. And so they all see me and they all smile and they all pull off their gloves at, at the same time. And they all stretch out their hands for shaking, uh, for a handshake. And I am standing there holding my pen and my you know, notepad and my recorder and going, oh, my God, what do I do? <laughs> I can't be impolite. I have to shake their hands, but what do I do after that? I can't touch anything after that. And they're standing and looking at me and rightly or wrongly, I take a deep breath and I shake all of their hands and then we start talking. Well, luckily there was a hand sanitizer on site and you know, I sanitized my, <laughs> my hand to the bones. Um, but that, that, that thought, that, that memory really stuck with me. Um, it really... Um, it, 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 it really got me that it, it, it's really not that simple to, to organize this on a large scale. And there are people who are so dedicated to it that this is what they do. This is what they do for a living. It was a very humbling experience too. Uh, when I came back to the hotel that, that evening, I thought a lot about you know, infections and, you know, whether I had anything to worry about. And what dawned on me was that after I walked around all these places, the lab, and also, you know, the yards of the people who told me how often the yards used to get flooded, you know, from their latrines. And I realized that I will have to put my shoes back into my traveling bag when I fly back home. And God knows what on the soles of those shoes. So I went to the nearest market and I bought an electric tea kettle and I boiled water in my hotel room and then I poured it all over my shoes and even over my clothes because that was the only way you know, to sanitize it. Um, I did not get sick to the very last day that I was flying back home. And I don't think I got sick from my reporting. I think I got sick from eating um, eggs probably contaminated with salmonella in my hotel. <laughs> Well, at least you can say that you're really hands on <laughs> and you're not afraid to get your hands dirty. <laughs> no. no, it was part of the experience. Um, I, I really loved it all. I just had to remind myself that I have to be cautious. Well, this has been such thought provoking discussion. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next project? Absolutely. So I'm already working on my second book. Because it's kind of in early stages, um, I don't want to give off too much of of information or or steal my own thunders later on. Um, But this book will be about a patent cure for infectious disease that was discovered early in the 20th century and then nearly forgotten Um, overshadowed by antibiotics. Had it not been for a small research clinic in the former Soviet Union in today's Georgia, where the scientists managed to preserve this method 
through the Soviet regime and its later collapse and economic hardships and all kinds of things. It will focus on two or three scientists, one who had fallen into obscurity for all the wrong reasons, one executed during Stalin's purges, and another still alive and well and working in America today to make this available to everyone a century later. Wow, that sounds super interesting. I hope you come and talk to us once your next book is out. Absolutely. So what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your latest book? Sure. Well, they can Google my name, Lena Zaldovich. According to LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and all the other social platforms, I am the only Lena Zaldovich in the world. Um, I don't know how that happened, but that seems to be still holding true. Um, they can Google my name. They can also Google the other dark matter, the science and business of turning waste into wealth and health. And they can find my book on Amazon, Goodreads, Barnes and Nobles, and pretty much any other platform that sells books. They can also find it directly on the University of Chicago Press uh, and buy it from there with a 20% off discount code Dark Matter. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And I should say that I and our listeners will never look at the poop the same again. <laughs> no, no, I, I hope they, they, they won't. And if you give me two minutes, I'll add sort of a, a finishing touch to it all. Um, I think the biggest thing, the biggest mind shift I wanted to achieve with this book in every society, whether developed or not so developed, is that our bodies produce a superbly valuable metabolic product. It's called people's own organic power or poop. Each and every one is a super pooper. Um, and this is how we should think of ourselves and of the substance we produce. So if I you know, leave my listeners with any kind of thoughts to ponder for a while, it would be humans value thy shit. And in fact, this is how I usually sign my books. Humans value thy shit. You're all super poopers and we're all great at it. I love it. Poop is the acronym of the day. <laughs> Poop is an acronym of the day. <laughs> yes. <laughs>